What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. This episode of the Wedgecast, we are hanging out with Lori Silverman. She is, I think, the only person I know who actually lives in Las Vegas. Like, literally, she lives right downtown on the Vegas Strip, which is just fascinating. I bet you some of the things that she's seen through the years is just hilarious. But uh, Lori is a speaker. She's an author. She's a CEO. She's a strategist expert. And she's just a genuinely amazing human being. So I'm excited to present to you this episode of The Wedgecast. It was a lot of fun with an even better person. Thanks, Lori. Well, Lori, thank you for being a guest on The Wedgecast. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Matt. So, okay, if you're if you're comfortable... Uh, sharing this the few you know the couple times back and forth we've communicated we've talked we've 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 gone back and forth you've always requested to talk over some form of wi-fi rather than cell service because of this unique building you live in the strip of las vegas can you can you share a little bit about that (laughs) oh my gosh absolutely so i live in a 44 year old building called marie antoinette it is the first condominium building that was built by the mob So our walls are primarily cement and we have beautiful floor to ceiling windows going outdoors. But that challenge means that unless you're standing right by the window, you can't really get cell phone coverage. And so I have a booster to help me, but oftentimes that doesn't help either. Wi-Fi for some reason seems to work perfect. So I gotta ask, have you ever thought about chiseling through the walls and finding gobs and gobs of cash just waiting for you? Or is that just something you're not interested in? Uh, you you want to get permission from the homeowners association for that? <laughs> <laughs> but Love I will that. tell you <laughs> what um the 
that contractors in our building uh, talked about when I was moving in and doing some remodeling was that there are spirits that live in our building. We all talk about it. We all have our own experiences. And it actually is a unique sort of artifact, I think, of living here. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. So, Lori, give a, give a little background of your story and just, you know, what, what's led you up to today? Uh, my story actually starts when I was either nine or 10 years old. I went to my parents and I asked them if I could have plastic surgery on my ears. Now, you might say, well, how does that lead you into your career choice? But my ears were deformed at birth. And I was getting chided by the kids in school. Plus, I was swimming, and it was a kind of a difficult thing for me to put on a swim cap. So my parents agreed that I could have plastic surgery the summer after my fourth grade year, which meant that I entered fifth grade with bandages on my ears because I needed to have two surgeries. And then, by the way, my hair fell out in clumps which was meant I had to wear scarves to school. But in any respect, I decided for some unknown reason that I wanted to become a plastic surgeon. I just, I knew that that's what I wanted to be. So I set out this game plan as a kid that I would figure out a way to make this a reality. When I got to high school, I met a woman who was also going to become a surgeon and she told me that she wasn't going to stay in high school for four years. She was going to get out in three years. And I thought, that's even better yet. <laughs> you know, I can speed this all up. But when I got to my junior year, I was one credit short. And one day, I was walking the halls between classes. And this man who I thought was a teacher, but I didn't know him, was walking very fast toward me. Now, I was a pretty shy kid at the time, so I kept moving over to the side to allow him to pass. And he you know, looked at me and said, no, is your name? And then he stated my maiden name. And I said, yes. And he said, I understand that you are on the swim team with Karen Momsen and that Karen uh, plays the oboe. She said that you do too, but you're not in my band. I said, no, I stopped playing a few years ago. And he said, well, we want to make a record album. So that dates me, of course. And we need two oboe players. And I'll do anything for you. I'll get you an instrument. I'll get you the reeds. You don't have to pay for anything. I'll get you a music teacher to help you relearn how to play it. And I looked at so, him and so I So this said, conversation's all happening in the middle of your hallway, sort of out of the blue? Yeah, at school, at high school. Totally oh out of the blue. Because I'm a person. Apparently, apparently security was a little different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was different. But anyways, I looked at him and I said, I'll do it if you give me a credit. And he said, done. And so I want you to imagine what this was like. I went home. I'm so excited. I say to my parents, guess what? Guess what? I'm going to graduate after three years. I found a way to get that credit. And they are unhappy. They are completely angry with me because they did not want me going to college at age 16. They, my father hadn't ever been to college. My mother had gone for a year or two to be a teacher, but they didn't know. I mean, what were they going to do with their daughter? Where was she going to be? And this was the springtime. And I was going to enter college like a few months later. 
So it was, it was quite an interesting time for us because my parents had to accelerate the process of where are you gonna go to school? They, they obviously chose for me, which is actually quite interesting too, because they chose that I should go to UW-Madison. I lived in Wisconsin in a very tiny town with an Italian father who was very overbearing. <laughs> they Probably had me, a little had a little clear cut path of the direction he wanted you to go. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit, but I don't, you know, when you send your kid to a school of 50,000 people and your daughter has been sheltered as a child, what do you think happens when she step foots on campus? Uh, I could see this going a lot of different directions <laughs> maybe let loose and enter the party crowd. Uh, maybe, be, maybe get gobbled up and want to go be, or become homesick way too quickly. I could see, I could see a lot wrong happen with that. I also could see a lot, right? So, <laughs> well, I, I ran toward college with a fury. I had never dated in high school. So you can imagine I kind of had a metamorphosis. Um, that summer and went from being what I call the ugly ducking, duckling to being cute. So there were boys all around me. I remember my father calling home over Labor Day weekend saying, hey, are you going to come home? I'm like, heck no, I have five dates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's, that's a, a, a slightly overbearing Italian father. That's probably not the best line to use. That'd be my guess. That'd be my guess. <laughs> well, exactly. And then I discovered that if I were to run for dorm floor president that I could actually set up all the parties with the boys dorms. So I want you to imagine what this was like, you know, here's this girl, she's going to take 17 credits, almost a full load. She's going to take all the hard sciences because of course she wants to become a doctor as quickly as possible, get into pre-med school, do whatever. And now she has the social life that's looming in front of her. So I had, it was an amazing first semester. That's all I will say. But something changed. In my junior year, I was headed toward getting a bachelor's degree in molecular biology when I approached the dean. At that time, you had to get permission to get a degree in a particular field. And when I spoke with him, he looked at me and he said, I only grant three degrees a year in this field. And a woman is not going to receive one of those slots. Now, at this time, I think I was like 19 years old. I had never really been told no. The classes I had taken had been really challenging and difficult. So it wasn't like I hadn't struggled because I was a pretty smart kid, but I wasn't a smart kid because I studied. I was a smart kid because I could intuit a lot of things. And you can't do that in the hard sciences. So now what do I do? I mean, my whole path for nine solid years has been to get a degree that's gonna allow me to go to pre-med school to become a physician. And I ended up in the Dean of Students office. And I still remember the woman who chatted with me for many months, her name was Mercia Lee, uh, what a gift she is. And I told her my story. This gentleman got disciplined and I believe he was removed from his position for what he said to me. But I spiraled down because I thought, what am I going to do with my life? Like, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? I was already married for a year. So I, I mean, I had a husband and I had to figure things out and now I'm not going to go to med school. So what's the next path for me? And 
So this was your, remind me, you're, you're, you said you're nine, how old are you? 19? 19. Yeah. So this is like your midlife crisis basically happened at age 19. Hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Marcel and I did, and I don't even know if this is available today. I believe it is. We did what's called the strong Campbell interest inventory. And when it came back, it, you know, said, well, you would be a great attorney. You would be a great um, actor in the theater. I thought, well, that would be fun. <laughs> an attorney and an actor coming back in the same score. Now that's an interesting combination. Exactly. And then it said that I would be good as a counselor. So Marcel said to me, she goes, well, you know, we have a master's program in counseling and guidance, which would be like a school counselor in the school of education. But some of the people who are graduating from there are going into business and industry. Perhaps there's a way for you to get into that program. Well, long story short, I actually did so poorly on the GMATs that they should not have let me in. But someone someplace had to have pulled some strings because the next thing I knew I was in that graduate program. And I met another man who was influential, but in a very positive way. His name was Gail Farwell. He was my advisor and my one of my professors. And he looked at me within like a month because I told him, I said, Gail, I think I want to go into family therapy. And he said, we'll talk about your family's background. And I said, my dad is an entrepreneur. He owns a construction firm. He's very, very, very successful. And Gail said, I'm not certain this is going to work for you, but why don't you go and do some informational interviews with family therapy clinics around the Madison, Wisconsin area, and then come back. I came back to him and I said, Gail, what those people earn in a year is what my father makes in a week. I don't think my family's going to go for this. (laughs) He said to me, well, there is another option. I said, well, what is it? And he said, how about you take all of your electives in the school of business And I go to American Family Insurance and figure out a way for you to get a two-year full-time paid internship in the training department. And then maybe what you can do is you can take your love of healthcare and marry that up with training and development. And so that's exactly what I did was I went to work at American Family Insurance, went to school full-time. I also had another job in a hospital. I worked in purchasing. Uh, where I actually learned how to flowchart all of the procurement processes, which to this day was a great uh, opportunity in my life. And then when I graduated with my master's degree, it was during, it was 1981 when the economy was horrible, absolutely horrible. I was only one, uh, I was, there were three of us, I think out of 42 who got jobs and I was one of them. I ended up going back to where I grew up and got a job in the hospital where I'd been a candy striper when I was in high school. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, kind of this, I thought was my sweet spot. It meant that I didn't live with my husband though. So this was before the time that couples lived apart, but we actually did live apart. I worked and lived in one city. And then on the weekends, I'd come back home to visit him. So you can imagine what some of the challenges were with that as well. Yeah. So uh, quick question up until this point. So you're a lot of your life up until 19, you were set on becoming a plastic surgeon. Now you're very clearly on a different path. Were you regretful of that at this point now that you have a little bit, somewhat of a little bit more of a direction or were you not even thinking about it moving on? And that's that onward. You know, I never was regretful because I was still working in a hospital setting. I mean, so much so that 
I even looked for a job back in the community where my husband lived. And so after a couple of years, I went back to live with him full time and had a similar job in another hospital. I never thought twice about it, but it was the event that happened in that second job that really set me on the path that I'm on today. That's amazing. That's awesome. Keep, all right, cool. Keep going. I mean, the story's great, so keep going. So what happened was, um, I was, when I got the second job, my boss said to me, and she was very clear up front in the interview process. She said, here's the deal. If I give you a job, I can't pay you as much as you've been making at this other hospital. And there's no career advancement here. The only way you're going to advance is if I leave. So you're going to have to be happy staying in place. And I said, I'll do anything. I just want to get back home. Now, the surprising thing was a week later, my husband left me. So for coming home, oh my goodness. the personal piece was already gone. And I had to figure out how to hire an attorney and get a divorce. Um, but a couple of years into that position, I became really bored. I mean, really bored. And I said to my boss, I was in a training and development function again, uh, and I had figured out a way to actually create a new role. So I made myself a middle manager in charge of leadership training for the hospital. And I said to her, I want to go out into the Madison community and do informational interviews with people about what the future of leadership is. And one of the people I met was a guy by the name of Peter Schultes. And Peter had just written a book called The Team Handbook. It had sold over a million copies. And he said to me, you need to go hear this man named Dr. Deming and then go to his four-day seminar. Plus, you need to join the American Society for Quality. Now, I didn't understand anything that this man was saying to me, but I trusted him. Of course, it's just, it's just one of those, like, you're probably totally in awe by who this guy is, obviously influential. And it's like, yep, I'm just going to trust you. What do I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? And then go do it. Absolutely. But my hospital wouldn't pay. So I ended up taking out, I want you to imagine this, made $18,000 a year. I went across the hallway to the credit union that was in our building, took out a $2,000 loan, signed myself up for a seminar with Dr. Deming in a city I'd never been to, Coronado. California at the Hotel de Coronado, which I couldn't afford to be at. I stayed at the hotel across the street that taped the key to the door because I was late flying in. <laughs> and as I still remember the next morning, as I was walking into the conference, this woman said to me, she like stopped me. And I have a lot of serendipitous experiences in my life. She said, hey, where are you sitting inside of the conference center for Dr. Deming's seminar? I said, I, what do you mean? I said, I'm just arriving now. She said, oh my gosh, you won't get a seat. I said, no, no way. You know, I've flown all this way. I paid for it on my own. And she said, well, today is your lucky day. I said, why is that? She said, well, I work for a company called Microsoft. And I'm like, Microsoft, I don't know the name of that company. <laughs> yeah, come Yeah, come again, which, which company is that? Exactly. And she said, I'm sitting next to a guy from AT&T Bell Labs. And I'm thinking, I don't know the name of that company either. That's how sheltered I was. And she said, um, we have an extra seat in the front row if you'd like to come join us. And not, I mean, everything that happened that week was amazing because the man who introduced Dr. Deming said, nobody ever sell, sends themselves here on their own or pays their own way to hear Dr. Deming. If anyone ever does, they can have the first morning break with him. So of course I raised my hand and said, I'm going to meet with him, which I did. So he and I had ice cream together and had a nice chat. Uh, these two people, I think, in some ways took pity on me in terms of the investment I had made. They bought me all my meals. They would sit with me on the beach and go through the materials because it didn't click right away. 
And then when it did click, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, my life has to be completely different. So now I, you know, I'm flying back to Wisconsin. I'm about to tell my boss that everything that we've been doing is wrong. <laughs> At the same time, she's about to tell me that she has accepted a job elsewhere and she is leaving the organization. So I got her role as acting director of an education department, was in that role for a number of months, trying to implement a lot of these new ideas that we were, that I felt needed to be brought forward when one day my leader came to me. I want you to imagine a senior VP of HR. And he, well, first of all, he kind of calls me up on the phone and he says, we need to meet, we need to meet now, we need to meet privately. And I'm like, okay, fine. I hadn't taken over the director's office because I didn't feel as an acting director that that was appropriate. And I wanted to be with my people. I didn't want to be separated from them. And he and I met in the private office and he said to me, um, I'm here because I want to tell you who your new boss is. And I said, excuse me, my new boss? He said, yeah, we hired someone for the director role. I said, I'm really confused. I said, in the history of this hospital, for decades and decades and decades and decades, every acting director has become the director. There was not one instance where that did not happen. He said, well, not today. And he proceeded to explain to me that an employee that I had helped hire three years earlier was coming back as my boss and that I would be demoted and my pay would be decreased, but that I was supposed to help her learn her new role. Yeah, that's a pleasant introduction. Exactly. And that's when I realized that I was being hit over the head for the second time in my life. So I did what anyone would do. I called a parent. I called my dad. I'm sobbing into the phone. I say, what do I do? Help me out here. He says, who do you know? I say, I know no one. Absolutely no one. He said, no, you got to know somebody who can give you a job. I'm like, no, I don't know anybody. He said, I'm serious. There's got to be one person. And I said to him, you know, when I registered to see Dr. Deming and my hospital wouldn't pay for it, I ended up calling back the company that registered me to change the name that was on my name badge because I took my hospital name off of it. And that man said to me, if you ever need anything, give me a call. My dad said, call him, tell him you need a job. Don't tell him what happened and tell him you need a job fast. And it just so happened that man worked for one of five companies that Dr. Deming was affiliated with. They were one of the fastest growing startups in the total quality arena. And I was hired and on site as a new consultant three months later and had doubled my salary. That's amazing. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So what I tell people is, you know, I know that we talk a lot about free will, but what that, those sets of events started to teach me, and it didn't teach me this for many years, I wasn't that smart to pick it up at that time, is that th there is such a thing called free will, but there's such a thing called destiny. And you are placed on this earth for a reason. Only we don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what that reason is. And we each should be trying to figure that out because that's part of our own growth and development. And I know this is going to sound a little bit like woo-woo spiritual sort of thing, but I'll say it anyways. Your soul has a reason for being here in this lifetime, and you need to figure out what that is. And that is your destiny. And around that, you have a lot of free will choices, but you have to figure out what that was. And for me, it was not to become a doctor. Now, all the things that came out in that inventory, be a theater person. I'm a professional speaker today. I'm a keynote speaker. I speak in front of you know more than a thousand people. 
uh, be an attorney. I have to be concerned about all of the legal issues surrounding the intellectual property that I create because I do a lot of innovations and I work on the bleeding edge of a lot of subjects. So I'm bringing forward new ideas. The counseling piece of it, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times across the companies I've worked in in 25 industries where my role has been primarily to coach executives, C-suite leaders. And all of those skill sets have been critical. But even then, with that move into that organization, little did I know that was still not my destiny. It put me on the path to my destiny, but it wasn't ultimately what I believe now today you know, 30 years later that I'm actually meant to do. So can I ask the, uh, the question that I typically end with, but I feel like now's a great time to ask it. Sure. So rather than asking the question, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? I'd rather ask the question framed up in the context of what you just led up with. What, what do you feel like you figured out your destiny to be? Um, I think that my, Destiny is to open doors to new possibilities, to open doors to new areas, arenas, topics for organizations to embrace in order to become smarter, more intelligent organizations, not only for their consumers, but also for their employees. And also on a very personal level to help people individually see the possibilities of what can be and to connect them to the people who can help them reach those goals. Now, obviously that's not something you can put on a website, right? Or something you can put on a business card. So I've had to figure out like, how does that translate into what I do? But I know that my work today is to always be at the bleeding edge to say what's coming the way that I put it uh, yesterday into a video that I created is, how do I take subjects that Google Trends doesn't even recognize yet and put them on the map? That's the easiest way for me to think about it. Now, that requires a tremendous set of skills that I still today am learning because everyone in the field of consulting and everybody in the field of speaking or people who write books, and I work in all three of those industries, would tell you that that's not where you make money. Everybody would tell you that you make money on the tried and true, that you have to put your energies into what companies and people are asking for this very moment. And my comment always is, yes, and? Who's supposed to yeah. be the pioneer? Yeah, what you know? about what's next? Yeah, what's next? Who's supposed to be the pioneer? And then they come back to me and every single one of them, I kid you not, will say to me, yeah, but how does that pad your pocketbook? <laughs> it does. Eventually it does. Now it takes a lot of work to get there. But well, it's me, funny. It's funny how you, it's funny how you talk about that because Michael Leckie actually in, in the podcast I did with him and what I've heard him say multiple occasions is what we're learning today, you know, the, the, the speed at which information is moving, what we're learning today actually might not be true tomorrow. And that doesn't make it any less true today. But when you think about in the consulting context and you think about the information that people need to know today, well, they also need to be thinking about what that could mean for tomorrow too. Yes, except that they don't do that. I mean, if you look at the strategic plans of organizations, they're not strategic plans. They're not breakthrough and orientation. 
They're all about how do we make the business that we're doing today better because we're going to use forecasting to tell us what our goals should be three to five years from now. And the, what I'm talking about is very different is how does someone have foresight, which is a strategic thinking skill. And through that foresight, stand in the future and say, wow, look at how the world's going to be. Folks, you need to leapfrog over what you're doing today because I'm going to tell you that if you continue to do that, you may go out of business. And, and that's, a, that's a really hard sell for organizations because they're like, but yeah, we're making money at it today. And I'm like, mm, but you might not be a year from now. And don't you want to have bifocal vision, right? Don't you want to keep your eye on today at the very same time you're standing in the future and saying what's coming toward us? So we're not surprised by what those future possibilities might be because to prepare to be ready for that future might take you three to five years. I love that. That's awesome. That's amazing. So as I've been thinking through and as I've been listening to your story, one of the things that I have heard and seen, it's been, and, and, and it's actually been really interesting. A lot of breakthroughs that you've had in your life, you have come back to a transition that has happened. So what, one of the things you meant, like you mentioned is you came back uh, this big career breakthrough and then all of a sudden you're stepping into a divorce or you learn all these different leadership skills and you step back into uh, a new boss is stepping in and it was somebody who you had trained. And so you've had these, I, I think you said it was uh, slap over the head sort of moments. And so what about the season in life that like you didn't want to get out of bed or the really tough moments? Like what was that like for you? And ultimately, what did you like? How did you have hope in that? That's a really interesting question. I don't know if there's ever been a day I didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I mean, for me, because I just have so much energy. Even when I think about like the work that I'm doing now, which is in the field of data literacy and helping people to understand how to embed data into decision making and how to do that in collaborative ways. And, and why it is that the focus solely on data analytics isn't the right focus, that we need to be focusing more on how do we make better, smarter decisions. And that's really hard work to figure out how all the pieces come together. I still want to get out of bed every single day. I can't tell you how or why that feeling of being compelled comes from, but it, I think that when you are destiny presents itself and for me that topic is like one of three that's really huge today there's something in your underbelly that just pushes you forward i mean even on days like i was in park city last week and i call one of my supposed vacations all it means is i take my work with me to another city and i get to spend some time in a cooler climate versus you know what's going on here in las vegas i still on those days when I say, oh, I'm going to sleep in till eight o'clock, I'm still up at six or earlier. And I can, I can relate. That. I can relate to that. Yep. I totally get that. Yeah. And even for me, I don't want to go to bed. That's been my biggest um, aha living here in Las Vegas. I want to stay up working all hours of the night. And I have never ever been that way. I've always been a person who's been an early morning person. I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning. That's my best time to write. But here, nope. I might get up a few hours later, like I said, 6 a.m., 
but I don't want to go to sleep until 2 a.m. and I'm still doing work. I might be working on uh, grading papers for my graduate students because I teach a couple classes online and strategic thinking at the master's level and organization development and conflict. Or I might be, that might be my time that I'm putting together the pieces for an article or a couple nights ago, I was outlining some of the new content for a website because I'm talking to a web designer this afternoon, but I don't want to go to sleep. So for me, I think it's a different issue because there's the other half of it is you need sleep to be rejuvenated and you need sleep for your body to heal and you need sleep for your mind to be at its sharpest. So I kind of have the opposite um, thing going on right now. I don't know if that's true for you either. No, I can, I can totally resonate with that. Actually. I, it's funny, the seasons of life that I like get too much sleep almost, I'm like bogged down. I'm like, uh, I need a nap in the middle of the day. My mind's not stirring, but the moments like the seasons of life that that high is kicking in. And, and I will say it's definitely seasonal for me, but that high is kicking in and it's, you know, I, I am, you know, up early, fired up what I'm doing and I'm going to bed late because I'm just excited about it. I totally can resonate. Like sleep to me doesn't necessarily become a necessity by any means. Well, it, it doesn't seem that way to us, but our bodies need it, right? I mean, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. For, when I say necessity, it doesn't feel that way. My body actually requires it, but it doesn't feel that way. So I, told, I totally relate to that. That's awesome. Yeah. But for me also, because I live literally a block from the Las Vegas Strip. In fact, I just put up a post today on Facebook about the shows that I'm going to this weekend. Because if I had the opportunity to do so, I would play every single night. I would be out at some music event or a comedy show or um, just people watching or playing penny slots because that's kind of my addiction. Um, and I, I think that I live in the perfect place because it is adult Disneyland. And so it's always, it's a happy place. So when you think about people not being able to get out of bed, we oftentimes relate that therapeutically to, oh, you know, maybe they're feeling a little bit depressed or their body, you know, is just feeling sluggish because maybe their adrenal glands are off or something else is going on for them. But for me, I only have to look out my four large patio doors, floor to ceiling in my living room to see the lights of the Las Vegas Strip. And so I think that I'm called to that energy as well. Um, and it's also a reason people find this kind of comedic about me, but about five years ago, I started um, going to Coachella Music Festival. Now, I did not choose to go alone the first time. I actually was living with a boyfriend and had bought tickets for us to go and our relationship ended and he said he didn't want to attend with me and I was furious. I'm like, I am not going by myself. I've never been to a music festival with 100,000 people for three days. How dare you do this to me? And he said, no, I think this would be the best thing for you. That year when I went, I said to a gentleman who was putting a beer bracelet on my wrist so I could walk easily through the venue. I said, am I the oldest person here because I was 56 years old at the time. And he said, nope, you're the fifth oldest. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and now I'm like, woohoo, I already have, I got my ticket in June, you know, before the rest of the masses, because I'm on the early call list for getting tickets. Because I can't imagine not going to something like that, that is talk about energy. I mean, it's on steroids. I mean, that's a place where you don't sleep for three solid days. And I definitely now do not want one person going with me. 
<laughs> I love that. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. So, all right, one, uh, one, one closing question that I have for you that I, I am fascinated by this one that you've, you've kind of touched on, but this relates to the destiny question. So if somebody interacts with you maybe for half hour long on a podcast, maybe uh, for a one-minute conversation with you, if you get to choose the impact that you have on them, what would you want that to be? Loving kindness in the moment. Wrap it up, seal it up, and ship it out, because that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. uh, May I give you an example of this? Please do. Um, So there, this is... This is going to sound um, uh, kind of interesting, I think, to some of your audience members. But there's a man on LinkedIn who lives here in Las Vegas who I've been wanting to meet for two years. He does similar work in uh, data analytics to what I do. He leads an entire practice within a casino. And he has not responded to any of my inquiries, although he has linked to me as a friend. Well, recently I discovered that he and a couple of his colleagues at the senior levels were released from their organization and that they were putting on a series of career development seminars for free in the Las Vegas community. Now, what people don't know is my two graduate degrees, when I had to do my master's thesis, whether it be the, the, the uh, counseling degree I have or my MBA, I chose both times to do it in career development. So at American Family Insurance, I developed a career development program for the administrative staff. And when I worked at a hospital, I developed a career development program for their nurses. So I contacted one of the three people, a woman, and said, this is my background. I know you have these going on every single week for an hour and a half at Wednesday at lunch. May I please attend? I'm happy to offer my services. But in the back of the mind, I'm thinking, you know, I'm stalking this guy, right? (laughs) I really want to meet him. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sit down in the audience yesterday. There's only about 20 people who showed up, which I really made me sad. And at the end of the hour and a half, this woman and I uh, continued our conversation because we did a few activities together. And I do not know what possessed her or I to say something about where we grew up. And I just said, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. And she said, Oh, I grew up in Milwaukee. What town did you grow up in? I said, Menominee Falls. She looked at me and she said, I actually grew up in Menominee Falls too. And I just stared at her and we went to the exact same high school. There were two high schools in town and we graduated within three years of each other. And we likely have many, 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 many connections. And she is going through the toughest of times. She's been unemployed for two years. And my first initial reaction to her, because I knew that she wanted to cry. I mean, she just, it was such a sad moment, you know, to meet someone and then realize that you've got roots because now you feel like you can be vulnerable in the moment. And I just, I said, we will find a way for this to be okay for you. And as I was saying that I was going through like 10 things in my mind about what is it that I could do to make life easier for her? You know, how do we treat people with loving kindness? Um, You know, there are people around us every single day who need our help every single day. And we tune out and we tune off 
because we don't want to listen. You know, LinkedIn is all about the positives and here's where you're going to be and here's what's going on. Facebook, even with your closest friends, you know, people only want to hear the positive. Nobody wants to hear the negative. And I'm like, that's not okay. It's not okay. When are we going to choose to be vulnerable? And when are we going to choose to make vulnerability when it's not so good be acceptable? Because if we can't, I can't engage that loving kindness. I mean, not in the way that I'd like to with you. It doesn't mean that in every interaction, I can't be that way with someone, but I can't look deep inside myself and say, how can I be generous in a new and different way that would actually be meaningful to you? Does that make any sense? It makes complete sense. And I, it's funny. So I, I got asked to, uh, this was, uh, I, I got asked to give a talk when I was a sophomore at, at Hope College and I went there and they said, hey, can you just top, talk on a topic? And I'm thinking, I've got nothing that I'd be credible to talk about. But the one thing I do, what I, you know, I feel like might be an interesting thing is this whole idea of when you're having a bad day, what is it that you want the most? I mean, it's nothing practical. It's not, if I'm having a bad day, I need more money. I mean, yeah, sure, that could be a byproduct, or I need this, this, or this. But it's more, at the end of the day, I want somebody to recognize me and, and, and feel like, you know, I, I could talk and they'd be willing to listen to me, you know, whatever that is, or, or at least just acknowledgement. And what I, you know, ultimately, what I've realized is that what if we went and we started to be that person for others? So what if we took a step towards like what you were doing with that lady and say, hey, you know, I, here are all the different ways that I could help you. But first and foremost, you just sat there and listened and showed that you care. And I think that is one of the most powerful things. If we take that a little bit of empowerment and do that ourselves for other people, that's how we change the world. Well, I agree with you. And the other thing that I'm always move to do, but today you don't know if you can even do this, is to give people a hug. Because I know that she lives alone. I live alone. There are a tremendous number of people in the world, even who live with other people, who are missing that human contact. And that to me is another element of it. But you know, our society has gotten to the point where that's not okay. And I think that that's tragic. Because it's, it's just being human, right? It's another way of recognizing you're okay. You're a good person. Yep. I love that. And I think that is an amazing place to wrap this thing up. So Lori, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else you would like to, to say or to, to leave the audience with? Thank you so much for listening today. And I hope that you go, as you go on your own individual journeys, that you're able to see the opportunities that are hidden in some of these challenges that come into your path. Lori, thank you so much for being a guest on the Wedgecast. Thank you, Matt.